Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Ancient Office Hours by the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit is now boarding for all new and returning passengers. Now departing present ponderings. Next stop is Ancient Office Hours at a library lost in the sands of time. Hey everyone, and Happy New Year. I hope you all had a wonderful holiday. Welcome to episode 31 of the podcast, which also happens to be the first episode of 2022. This week's guest is Dr. Emily Austin, an assistant professor of classics at the University of Chicago. If you love Homer, then you'll love this episode because it features two Homeric epic fans completely nerding out. Dr. Austin's recent book, Grief and the Hero, The Futility of Longing in the Iliad, explores the nexus of grief, longing, and anger in the Iliad. In this episode, we take a real deep dive into which Homeric poem translations are the best. We examine the emotions in Homer, discuss whether Virgil's Aeneid is really just bad Homer fanfic, and I ask what silly scene from the Iliad or Odyssey she would like to see adapted to the screen. I don't remember the last time I really had a long chat almost exclusively about Homer. And if you haven't had one or can't remember your last Homer nerd out, then let this episode be a great starting point. Enjoy the up, and I'll speak to you all soon. Thank you for joining me this lovely, very, very warm afternoon. Let's just jump right in then. And uh, how did you get into classics? This is not one of the most flattering stories about me. I chose it totally randomly because I had this weird idea that all the people in my life knew Greek and Latin. And then when I learned Greek and Latin, I realized nobody knows Greek and Latin. So it's really, really unplanned. Although... I suppose the context for it is that I went to an undergraduate institution that had a common core curriculum where everyone took the same classes for almost two years, University of Dallas. Uh, and my parents did something like that, but their school didn't have majors. And I was pretty excited about having a major and thought maybe I could do math or something with writing or music. And then I tossed off this Greek and Latin idea. And so my dad said, oh, they have a good classics major. You could look into it. Yeah, so I chose it randomly. But then once I got into it, I realized this is kind of like never declaring a major because depending on your interests, the field encompasses you know, literature or poetry, prose, history, philosophy, art. Oh, yeah. And so that's, that's always been a fun broadening challenge for me at the same time as 
you know, I focused, obviously I work on Homer and in a certain sense it gets kind of narrow as a conversation with my peers. It's also very broadening. So it's been fun. Nice. When you were younger, were you just around people who knew what the major was, or did you have to do a bit of your own research into maybe you who knew what it was, but I had never heard of it. I had never heard of it until my dad, you know, this is back in the day when like colleges would send you like a book when you were accepted that had like majors written out of it. And and I really don't understand. It's not like my dad was like a controlling person. He's like very pro-freedom. He was just like, oh, this looks like a good major. And I was like, okay, (laughs) this is not planned at all. So I didn't know anything about it. And one of my favorite comments I've gotten about it is, sorry, majoring in classics because your last name is Austin, like Jane Austen. And it's not even spelled the same. Like, no, (laughs) it's just so, so no. Look, I see the comparison, but I would have done so much more with that. If you were to say, I'm an English major, then I'd really say, okay, you're trying to be the next. Thank you. I know. I know. Ay, ay, ay. Ay, ay, ay. That's right. Along the way then, I, I mean, it sounds great that your dad brought this to you and said, hey, this sounds cool. Were there any doubts? Was, was there any time or were there people who were kind of like, what are you going to do Why? with that though? Yeah, that, won't yeah, give yeah. You, that won't make you money. There yes. probably aren't a lot of jobs. Yeah. Yes. Tons of those voices. I went to a public school in New York state. So pretty close to New York city. So already people are like, why are you going to Texas? What are you majoring in? Like, what's going on? I wasn't too worried. I don't know if this is everybody when they're 18, but I was pretty idealistic. I didn't care too much about things being practical. (laughs) I think that's something maybe you're either born with or you grow into as you mature. I don't know. So there were those voices. I knew that I didn't really want college to be vocational training in any one-to-one sense. So I wasn't too worried about it. Doubts came more when I actually was learning the languages. I was just like, these are so hard. I just had no idea. And the only reason I'm here is because when I was graduating from college, I felt like I was graduating from high school because of where my Latin and my Greek were. And I was like, I've worked so hard to be able to read like three pages of Greek in one hour. (laughs) Like that is not fast, you know? And, you know, so I, I... very, very last minute decided to go to grad school to just keep reading things. It's not a good answer, but my answer is I I didn't aim at making this something I would do with my whole life. I just, I wanted to read beautiful things and I wanted to have fun conversations with people. It was like pretty much it. I I thought the humanities, I guess, were enriching on their own and that I would be happy long-term having that experience and that enrichment. And and then I would figure out the whole job thing. I think there was also like a secret room. You can edit this out if you want to, but there was a secret corner of me where I was like I'm just gonna get married anyway and like it's not gonna matter that much what I do which ended up not happening but (laughs) it was not a very noble thought process but that's what I was thinking I think that's totally fine. I know people who have done so many different things all either aiming toward a specific career or job or they didn't really have a plan and then just kind of got caught up and fell into things and then said hey okay this is fine (laughs) yeah and it seems like when you just said to go to grad school did you have to do a bunch of research really quickly to find where the best programs were or were you kind of like wherever they have a program wherever I can get in that's where I'm going 
Sure. I had a friend who had graduated a year ahead of me, super, super bright guy, Tyler Trevelyan, and he had gone to Boston University. So it was on my radar because of him. We had a phone call. He was like, I think you'll really like it here. So that was why I applied there, which is where I ended up going. I applied to my own institution, which of course now I know is like a terrible idea. But at the time I was just attached to where I'd gone to college and I didn't want to stay there. And then I picked a few other places that just were randomly on my radar. And I applied to UVA and Dalhousie and Fordham maybe. I mean, what was really scary was like, so it was like the first week of December that I decided I feel like at breakfast and, you know, all the applications are basically due right away. So now that I'm a professor, I'm realizing how generous my teachers were to write me recommendations really quickly. Scheduling the GRE, I think I took it the day after Christmas. I was like doing a crash course in math because I did not remember enough math to get a decent grade and my brother helped me. Yeah, so it was all super last minute, but I also was fine with that because I wasn't totally convinced. I had never wanted to be like a pale academic who works like 15 hours a day, which is what I thought grad school was. So I, I had these conflicting, like, I love Latin and Greek. I love getting to the point where I can actually do things in the language with some not fluency like I am in ancient Greek but some rhythm and understanding and I want to keep doing that because I put a lot into it already but on the other hand do I want to get a PhD in because I wasn't too convinced so I went so I did all the work and then I did get in and then I had another crisis about whether I was going to go or not (laughs) you still have to make some decisions so Yeah, these are the hard questions. I know Mm -hmm. so many people who are in the same boat right now. In the I'm sure you did. Should I go? I'm sure you did, especially right now, because 2006 was still before the kind of job bubble purse. I don't don't know what we call it, but yeah. The crunch is kind of, I suppose, what I call it. Okay. And so then once you got into grad school, how did you go about picking your dissertation topic and your areas of interest? Or did you always just know kind of, oh, I love classics for this one certain part of it. And that's just what I'm going to do. Not at all. In fact, I thought that I was going to be a generalist. I loved that I needed to know Latin and Greek, poetry and prose. We had to do, um, before we picked our topic, but when we had a sense of what our dissertation dissertation topic would be, we had to pick up what we called a special topic, and it was supposed to be in the opposite language, or at least very, very different from what your dissertation would be on. So I did my special topic, Livy's first pentad. And now that I'm looking back at it, I'm like, Livy, right? Because I've spent so much time thinking about Homer. But that was fun. I loved that. I loved classes and the breadth of it and everything. So I wasn't very focused on Homer from the beginning. Also, because just so much stuff is written on Homer. So much. It's like Shakespeare. It's just ridiculous. I didn't think I could handle all that scholarship. He's also a hard author to find your voice in because he's never like, this is what's going on. So you're kind of like, well, I see all these cool things. (laughs) Now, what do I say? If you had told me when I was a first year that I was going to write a dissertation on Homer, I'd be like, that's a terrible idea. (laughs) And I would have tried to talk myself out of it. You know, for me, Homeric poetry has been something I couldn't get away from. I just love reading it. It is so pleasant to me to read it. I love actually that he's hard to pin down. He, He keeps me flexible and like listening. I think this is something I like about classics in general. It's like, you know, even though there's historical, almost artificial in a certain sense, reasons why we study these two cultures and languages side by side, they also were conversing with each other and, or 
I, I suppose Rome was conversing with Greece as it inherited it. You know, the tragedians are conversing with Homer as they're inheriting him. And those, I don't know, it's almost like play or openness or threads. And they're just so wonderful when they pop up and when you see them. So it's fun to work on Homer because I don't have to worry about anything that came before. But I also love being in the field where I always pushed to go further. So anyway, how did I pick Homer? Yeah, I took a great Iliad class with Rainer Friedrich, who was visiting. He's not even a BU professor, but he was visiting. He taught us an Iliad class, and I got a little bit hooked. And we had to submit papers every year to all the faculty. And so it just like as a kind of evaluation, one of the papers I submitted was the paper for that class. And Steve Scully kind of stopped me in the hallway and said, you should write your dissertation on Homer. I think there's at least 15 dissertations on Homer that haven't been written yet. I was like, okay. <laughs> uh, 15. So it took me a while to pin down a topic, but, but now I love it. Okay. Yeah, that's really cool. I always loved reading Homer. I yeah. definitely knew it would not be the area of classics that I would be specializing in. Yeah, very smart, likely. Very smart. <laughs> but now I have to ask, because you've mentioned it, this is my probably my favorite question which just sort of annoys everyone else no problem Do you have a favorite translation of homer <laughs> do you have a least favorite <laughs> you know what? we can expand it we could say what is your favorite because you feel it's closest to the greek and what is your least favorite because for whatever reason maybe this author just uses no, a bunch I of translations that you don't like no, it's, it's such a hard question for me. I guess what I'll say is I didn't like Homer in English, and that's part of why it's a hard question for me to answer, because since I went through that, didn't like it at all. I was like, why all the fighting? Who are these people? And I would say, just wait till book 24, and we get to book 24, and it's 10 little lines of, a, you know, weeping together, and I'm like, that's it? It was a lot of killing for 10 lines. I was not impressed. <laughs> but I was 18. I don't know. And we read Lattimore for that. So Lattimore in a certain sense, although I really, he, in a certain sense, he's like almost perfect. His Greek is perfect. Well, something he does that's really nice is if the Greek repeats something, he translates it the same way. So you notice the formulas, you notice the word choice and stuff, but that also leads to a certain amount of dullness. It's not as vivid as Homer. Homer's like quiet, but very alive in Greek. And Homer's poetry, I don't know. I, I can't really stand Pope in a certain sense because the rhyming <laughs> gets to me and there's no rhyming, but, but he is a poet. And I love that. I taught Peter Green this year. And in a sense, he's like a more readable Lattimore. He's still line by line, and which is really nice. But it's not quite so heavy. He also does some things that are a little hokey or something. He'll say like every man jack of them for when Homer says all everyone. Who says every man jack of them? But that's just, like, I mean, that's just, I would do that. I would be a terrible translator of Homer. So I don't. I'm hoping that Sarah Rudin, who has a really wonderful Aeneid, decides to translate Homer for me. I, I should I should write her because she's a poet. My favorite version though is Alice Oswald's Memorial. I don't know if you've read it. It's she's a I think British poet. She, she did a version. She in actually she called it an excavation, but in the States, we've called it a version of the Iliad where she only translates the death narratives and the similes. 
and it's beautiful and I really like it because it's very faithful to like one voice in Homer which I think is pretty hard to do because it's not the whole thing she she doesn't have any of the narratives but she does get something and she does it very well which is really cool Okay, I think in undergrad alone, for all the different classics courses that I took as part of my major, and maybe one English, I had to read the Iliad and Odyssey five times. What? <laughs> Both it's of them? Like, yeah, four or five times. I can't <laughs> so remember. So many times. But oh it was gosh. so many times. And almost all of them use the same translation except for one class and I was oh. mad because then I had to go buy another, another one and I'm like please just use the same one it which was- one which one did they use I read Lattimore in one class the other four they all use Fagels. oh Fagels, my friend Fagels. yeah Fagels is a pretty good text to teach from I just find him a little bit loud. The exclamation points and the big dashes, it's just not Homer at all. But he's, yeah, he's pretty readable. I personally really love the Fagel's translations. Aww. They were what I cut my teeth on. Yeah, good for you. Scholar, so yeah. I have them on my shelf, pride of place. <laughs> and so when people come and see my my book collection, I always They're like, Fagel's, yeah. Yeah, I kind I of have a showed whole- yeah, I have a whole shelf of different translations because I just keep buying them, just experience them. I really want to like Carolyn Alexander because she's the first woman who translated the Iliad into English. I'm not sure I like it, but I'm not sure why either. So <laughs> I find it a rather fun experience to talk to people who focus on either one author or poetry or something because those are the kinds of people who have the bookshelves full of the same thing, but all <laughs> different. And then you can nerd out about about why your bookshelf is the same book, 20 copies. Yes, totally. It's, it's like ultimate nerddom, but in the best way possible. I aspire to do that. I want to be the one to have 20 copies of the same thing in well, rows and rows. I could probably give you some of my aliens if you want. Wow, I might have to take you up on that, although my parents would kill me for adding more books. I do not have room. It's the perpetual nightmare, right, of, of every classicist. You have twice as many books and not as much storage, and then you're totally. perpetually having piles of books either on totally. desks or on the floor, and then totally. um, you trip over them or your pets <laughs> trip over them, and then it's a mess. Yeah, that's right. Okay, this just sparked this question. How do you feel about Emily Wilson's translation? Of the Odyssey? Mm-hmm. Well, I haven't read it yet. It's propping up my my laptop right now, actually, so I can't pull it out. There's things I like about it. I do think she's a poet, so that I really like that about it. There's things I don't like about it, and they're probably what I don't like about maybe any modern translation of any of these. I don't know. Sometimes I feel like she's kind of forcing the openness of Homer. Like Homer just strikes me as so open, so polyvocal. It's and that's really what I like about Alice Oswald. She sees in Homeric poetry, I think she described it once. I have a note to myself that she, she described it like a stem cell. You just never know where it's going to go. It might grow off into this other story or we're going to get this little narrative. And of course you can't do that when you're translating into English. So with Emily Wilson, I feel like I'm learning a lot about Emily Wilson, which is fine. I mean, she's the translator and that's what translation does. 
but there's this other dimension to Homer that I miss. I, I'm not a big, I know, I just got a lot of press about complicated man. I don't think that's a good translation of philatropos. So, but I mean, what is a good translation? There isn't. So <laughs> might as well do complicated. <laughs> yeah. And I know she's doing an Iliad now. So we'll see. Or I think I heard that. Ooh, I think I heard a rumor, but I have not. It might just be a rumor. To, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I hope she does. I think I would find it interesting just to see what she does yeah. with the Iliad. Yeah. But just I think cycle, but, sorry, cycle back to Peter thinking he has done his Iliad Odyssey translations in his nineties. I, I think he's still alive, and I think he's like ninety-five or something Ooh. right now. And so that also is just like a fun fact to me that we just keep trying. We, whoever we are, like people just keep translating this stuff, and I'm like. I know what I'm going to do in my retirement. Not that this is what Emily Wilson is doing, but like, I'm going to translate the Iliad. That's incredible to me that there's something unreachable, but there's something fun or that we feel like contributes to the trying and everyone gets a different thing. Anyway, what were you going to say? Say one, I think you're making an excellent case for anyone who has the time or the interest, especially if anyone is in undergrad or thinking about going to grad school. You're making an excellent case for reading both poems in their original language yes. because that's how it is meant to be yeah. and that's going to be the best translation you can possibly <laughs> read that's right. that's right finding small flaws in in some of these other translations it's fine yeah. you know yeah. none i've read a lot of different translations in my life yeah, yeah none are perfect right but they're what we have for the english speakers and absolutely don't have time that's right that's right so i'm curious though because I think I saw you specialize in emotions. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah. How did you get into emotions? Because that yeah. is definitely an angle that I don't think I've talked to anyone who has focused on that. And and mm-hmm. it's such an integral part of these poems. I mean, these are right. very emotional poems. And every right. time I read them, I'm like, oh my gosh, it's going to make me cry. I'm going to laugh at, you know, how, yeah. how much of a strumpet Achilles yeah. is being today. Yeah. Yeah. Can yeah. you talk a little bit about sure. it from that angle? Sure. Yeah. When I was taking this Iliad seminar in grad school, the paper that I wrote <laughs> ended up, the good points of the paper were personal relationships. That is the feedback that I got. That is to say, one of the things that Homer does, one of the points of intersection maybe between what we all experience and what Homer is depicting are people being motivated by their relationships with their community or their ally or their king. You know, Hector's fighting for wife, son, but also city. Achilles Achilles is wronged by his army and withdraws and and all these dynamics of what makes people do what they do. I just got really interested in that. And I think the poem is very interested in it. I think it's part of the poem's polyphony. Like it's not judging Greeks versus Trojans, but it's showing you, yeah, Achilles acts like a jerk and there's huge consequences. But at the same time, the poem shows you a little bit of the why. Emotions are very integral to our ability to to identify with that motivation or to see it as a human thing. So with Achilles, or, or at first, what I was really interested in is how often people are crying in the Iliad and how tears are sometimes communicative, like they bring people together, but sometimes they're symbolizing the loneliness of the hero or their a person's withdrawal. So Achilles cries when he first withdraws from the army. 
But at the same time, his tears allow the God or, or part of his prayer to the God and, and part of what's heard and part of that vengeance that comes right there in book one. And this, this is repeated in book 18. After he loses Patroclus, his mother comes to him. You know, he's crying. She's like, why are you crying? And we're in book six. And Charmaine's crying. And then Hector pities her. There's just all this communication around it. So that's actually the topic I defended at first. And I thought a little tiny piece of this was going to be to try to understand what tears for Patroclus help Achilles do in terms of reintegrating into the army. But then I realized there's a huge thing going on here with the relationship between grief and anger. Lots of people assume that grief gives rise to anger in general and in the Iliad, and they see it happening in Achilles, but no one was really asking why. And that seems to me an important question. Why, if you lose someone, do you feel angry? One thing that you, you feel angry because that other person killed your friend. So you're angry at that person for killing your friend. Okay, so what do you do in that anger? You kill the person. What well, doesn't bring your friend back? And so there's something there where it's like, the thing that's motivating the action is a law and the action doesn't heal the loss, even though the action's motivated by the loss. And that's why grief and anger can become cyclical. And the poem's really interested in this because non-Achilles characters in the poem are like, oh, I feel a little better. I only killed this enemy and it's made up a little bit for the death of my friend. But as a whole narrative, especially with Achilles, I feel like the poem does a thorough examination of how come that doesn't really work? Because what you really want is the person back who, who you've lost. Ooh, that is a really cool way of thinking about it. A lot of us get trapped in the surface kind of analysis where when you do something, I mean, it's one thing, I suppose, read the poem itself and to really dig in and analyze it yeah. from an academic perspective. And then you have something like the Brad Pitt Troy, where people <laughs> who have never really heard yeah. of classics or interacted yeah. with any of the original Greek material, right? They, they watch this thing and they go, okay, well, it's one, yes, it's it's hard to put it in a movie, the, all the, the depth, but you see Brad Pitt striding around, yeah. yelling at people, yeah. being very angry. Yeah. And then you go, oh, okay. So he's just, yeah. he, so he's mad. He's mad because right. he lost his friend. Right. That's kind of it. And then you take and it. Then and then we're like, done. Okay. And yeah, then we're, we're done. done. Yeah. And that presents itself in so many different ways. I think one thing that I always that gets me, I always get a little mad when I watch that movie. I'm like, wouldn't Achilles' mother, who you see for all of maybe a five-minute scene, and she's all, you will never come home, my yeah. son, don't leave. Yeah. And then you have the whole movie and he dies and blah, 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 blah. You don't ever see the reaction, the grief and the anger of his yeah. mother. Yeah. Right? That's like a yeah. huge thing. So it's the only thing that movie got right is Peter O'Toole saying, I've done what no man's ever done. I've kissed the hands of the man who killed my son. I don't know if that's how they translate the lines, but they got it. And it was Homer. Peter O'Toole said it. So I'm happy. But yeah, it's it's a pretty surface movie. Yeah. I have a lot of friends who even say the title, they go. I don't know her. No, we don't. We don't acknowledge that movie. Mm, not a thing. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I don't feel that quite that uncharitable about it because I recognize yeah. it does the job of getting people into totally. her. Hey, I get totally. why some people are like, no, I don't. I refuse to acknowledge that as a thing. <laughs> That's valid. <laughs> All right. So Homer is, as we've established now, a very unique special, amazing text all in itself. What he's done is just amazing. When it comes to the Aeneid, uh -huh. dare I even mention it, half of us will go, oh, that's just bad Homer fan fiction. <laughs> 
dare I even yes. say that on here. And some people will say, no, it's unique. It's good. It's more of a proto-Roman hero, but it's still the Iliad and Odyssey in reverse order. Still not great. As someone who specializes in Homer and as someone who does not specialize in the Aeneid or right. Virgil, right. what do you think about the Aeneid? You know, what is it really some sort of plagiarized, changed copy or is it definitely like its own unique entity? Great question. I teach freshman course, Ethan, that has in its current incarnation has an epic quarter in the fall. And we this year at least we read the Iliad, the Aeneid, and Paradise Lost. So that is a fresh question and I just don't know. I mean, I don't think it's fan fiction. I think he's doing something. He's doing something political. He's doing something smart. But as far as its relationship with Homer, I just am totally flummoxed. <laughs> really, because you're checking boxes so obvious and you're a masterful poet. I read Virgil in Latin and I'm, I love his poetry. It's just gorgeous. You didn't have to check the boxes. You have the mastery of this narrative. Are you making fun of Homer? I really don't know what he's doing. And maybe he's, maybe it is part of a complicated poetic voice game. I mean, one thing, the most obvious thing that happens for my students when they move from the Iliad to the Aeneid is increased voice of the poet. The poet's voice is becoming more obvious. Location in a historical moment is more obvious of the narrator or of the poet or whatever. And so maybe he's drawing attention to that by dancing through all the Homer checklists. It's pretty tough for me to like Aeneas and that I think deliberate, but also very difficult for me because how do you read a whole epic if you don't really like Achilles? Someone just challenged me, like, do you really like him or you just appreciate him? I think I kind of like him. I mean, I don't want to actually be friends with him, but there's something noble about him, even though there's all these things he did that were horrible. Same with Hector. I really like Hector. It's easier to like Hector, but these characters compel me. And I read it, yes, and I'm like, not compelled. You're making sympathetic faces like, <laughs> like you hear me. I don't think it's any secret for friends, family, and at this point, probably a lot of my listener base that I do not like Virgil. I do not like the Indian, <laughs> and I do think it's honestly bad Homer fan fiction. <laughs> Have you had Shadi Birch on here? Because she would just No, I have not. But now I must. (laughs) You'll get the whole explanation of what he's up to. Yeah. My favorite, one of my most shared memes, the picture of the girl who has a cat and then the picture next to her is her tracing the cat and then gets like a really bad traced version of this cat. Good, the the cat part is Homer and then the bad tracing is the Aeneid. And I share that very, very often. That's hilarious. So So I always say- (laughs) You don't think his poetry is beautiful? You know, no, I don't. But also I just- (laughs) This goes to this larger issue of, I hate, okay, that's a very strong word. I dislike Augustus with a fiery burning passion. People are free to disagree with me. I know plenty of people do. And I've talked to plenty of Latinists on here that definitely do Mm -hmm. disagree. And they don't think that Virgil was just his sort of propaganda master to make him look good and make his lineage look great. But yeah. I do. I think he was just there to pump him up, pump his ego up, yeah. pump his lineage up. Yeah. Anything that Virgil writes, I'm like, nah, nah, you're yeah. doing that yeah, for yeah, your yeah, yeah. good friend, yeah. Augustus. Yeah. I don't yeah. like you. So The benevolent, benevolent emperor, what do we call it? Tyrant? Tyrant. Um, it's just so disturbing to me that like he was the nicest of the emperor. Well, I guess there was like 
a couple that weren't that terrible, but I like, I don't know if I like, but I appreciate Hadrian, I suppose, just because he was all with the, okay, you know, I like the Greeks. I like these, these things that they've brought to us. So I will restore and I will help preserve and blah, 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 blah. blah. Yeah. I don't, you know, I don't think there are really any emperors I could say I like. It's very difficult. I do like thinking about, because we have situations, or at least in our recent history, where people haven't been able to just write whatever kind of poetry they they want. So I do think thinking about how people navigate that is interesting. And I guess that's what a lot of Virgil scholars do. Like, you have this situation. But even Chapman, I didn't I didn't mention Chapman's translation of the Iliad, which is pretty fun. It's the first one into English. But when he wanted to do this, you know, he had to write a letter to, I don't know, some prince to say, like, give me money to write my home. And he does it in a very noble way, like English is impoverished without Homer and all this stuff. But it's also like, no one else, no one's gonna sell copies to support you, right? So patronage was a reality. And that's also interesting to think about. That's very different from our world of publishing or poetry. Not to defend people who court emperors, but I, I do like thinking about it. I like thinking about the politics. Of- yeah, well, it's interesting how it even ancient poetry relied a lot on patronage because it's really hilarious in a very twisted way how when I think of our modern system, it still is kind of a system of patronage. I mean, it's it's clearly yeah. different than ancient times, but yeah you're going, you're, you have something and then you're kind of begging people, oh, please, yeah. please, I'm going to try yeah, yeah. to convince you yeah. to publish my work. Yeah, yeah. And then I have to tell you and sell you on why it'll be profitable to you. Yeah. And then it's the same thing for academia as well, right? I mean, yeah. funding, oh, totally. research for classics, it's all, yeah. hi, I'm going to convince you why my research is worth it. So please give this me money. True. It's true. It's a patron of this them. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> Not a lot has changed. But also a ton has changed from right, then until right. now. <laughs> right. the, the similarities are striking, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. Now that we've established that, I think we both are very flummoxed by Virgil. And <laughs> yes. So we, we are stuck with, as I mentioned before, the uh, <clears throat> Brad Pitt Troy. But right. we were we were thankfully graced with the new Netflix miniseries, Troy Fall of the City. Have you seen it? I watched a couple episodes. I also have a problem with just how sensual a lot of this stuff is. And like, it's so unhomeric. Like Homer's, again, quiet, not in the sense of lullaby, but he just like depicts things and lets you make of them what you will. So I have a pretty low tolerance for Hollywood versions, I've realized, of the ancient world. So you like it? I thought it was... I mean, it's a lot better than Brad Pitt's movie, for sure. <laughs> Can I just say, though, that Brad Pitt also thought there was way too much strutting of Brad Pitt around in Troy. He was like, why is my face on screen this much? So he got it. <laughs> yes, I, I do not blame the actors themselves for the horrible things that they might have might or might not have but been their directors through. to them yeah anyway yeah i would say you know it, it did include a lot more characters that are actually in the poem right. the brad pitt version did not even have a penthesilea and i'm like mm-hmm. how can you have a version of the elite without your amazon warrior in <laughs> you know xena figure right how can you exclude and in the miniseries they put her and other characters in so i definitely that's agree. right they included a lot of stuff from like the what I would call the epic cycle. So the story that these poems were coming out of. So I, I did see the episode with the Judgment of Paris, for example, which is only alluded to in the Iliad and not really described as such. And do they have a Trojan horse? I haven't watched that part. 
Yes, they do. They cover, they go a, a little beyond the Brad Pitt movie because I know that ends with the funeral of Achilles and it kind of just fades to black as you see him burning on the on the pyre. This one, I think, has a bit of the epilogue stuff where yeah. you see what happens to Andromache. You see what happens yeah. to Hector's son and how she's just yeah. so aggrieved. Yeah. And um, so you see kind of where all the, the Trojan yeah. women are being dispersed. And so then it kind yeah. of provides a basis for, oh, if you're going to read Trojan Women, then you're going to know exactly who goes where sure. and, and what happens. Sure. So it doesn't go too far, but it, it definitely has like them taking the spoils and dividing the things and then leaving and you know exactly mm-hmm. what's going to happen. So yeah, they did a better job. There's some things that I'm definitely not wild about. Mm-hmm. It's a hard one because no one knows quite what to do with the gods, right? Like it's a really... Yeah awkward placement i mean if there do you think there's a way we could do it and do it justice if absolutely we not no but but no. but one of our grad students david delbar he 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 has said exactly what you're saying about that about the gods but but for me it's like the lord of the ring i don't know if you're a lord of the rings fan but it's like the lord of the rings and the elves right people are like the elves were so weird in the movies well how exactly do you depict an elf right and, and so i'm sort of tolerant <laughs> about these things like yeah the gods are really hard especially because in the Iliad the gods are already weird even just reading it as a poem it's so hard to figure out what we're supposed to make of them sometimes they seem like abstract horses sometimes they seem like humans who just don't die uh, sometimes they're in between so with all of that layeredness how would you even start to depict that in something physical or visual yeah but anyway david dalbar our grad student thinks he has an idea and wants to do it so god bless him <laughs> see how he does i'd be interested to see how that turns out although yeah. okay so here's a really fun one then where we don't need to hew to accuracy and all that if there were one scene from either the Iliad or the Odyssey that you would want to see portrayed on screen, and it can be almost like satirically funny, but just you want to see it done because it's not been done before, what would it be? I don't know if it's been done before. I mean, I've never thought about this. I really, but I taught Iliad 15 to 17. There's a simile. So what's really interesting to me is like, so if it's a simile, the thing that it's comparing, that whatever's being compared to must be familiar to the audience, right? So Ajax's defense of the ships and the way he's striding over the ships is compared to some guy who's riding four horses that are tied together abreast and he's jumping from horse to horse. I have no visual for that. So maybe what I would want is for someone to help me visualize some of these similes, but that's another problem. That would be the other problem, how you depict the gods and how you depict the similes. And they're kind of similar problems because they're part of the texture of the poetry and they're part of the imaginative world, but they're not part of the narrative. So like, yeah, I don't, I don't know how I really do that. I, that is one of my favorite scenes in the movie though, is Ajax defending the ships and everyone's like, he's just like kind of in front and everyone's behind and just killing Trojan after Trojan who comes up with fire. It's kind of moving to me yeah that's a hard one because there are so many good things that i would love to see portrayed for me because no one knows what to do with the gods i always think that it would be great fun to see is the duel 
between Harris and Menelaus where yeah. Aphrodite, he's about to be stabbed or something. And then Aphrodite yeah. just kind of snaps her fingers and transports him or literally sort of comes to get yeah. him and drops him off in the marriage bed or whatever it is. Yeah. No one has attempted to do this. <laughs> true, Lexi, that's true. No one's tried. <laughs> and I want to I want to see I just want to see little Paris cowering in front of this giant and then just have some some sort of wisp or maybe this ghostly dress come and whoosh him away and it's like a teleportation and then he beams into the room on the bed. That's right. That's right. And Menelaus is really upset holding that empty helmet. <laughs> yeah, not only is he upset because he's like, I was robbed of my chance to stab this little weasel here. It's, it's the hilarity of the entire situation in the scene. He's about to yeah. die. He's confronting yeah. her husband. And then yeah. boom, he's he ends up yeah. in her bedroom. Yeah. And it's like, okay, great. Yeah, I wonder how we would do that. So much to look forward to. So much to look forward to. Oh, I I love imagining these things. And (laughs) one thing that I guess I observed when I was talking to Dr. Jay Reed, who's an expert in Virgil, actually. So, of course, this is someone who I do not agree with, but he had great things to say nonetheless. We were observing that there, there have not been a lot of adaptations of the Aeneid, probably for obvious reasons. What do you think one would look like that's, that even tries to be good and not just some hilarious Homer takeoff? Right. I mean, I suppose you might just have to not do it, do the Aeneid, but just kind of tell this, like maybe just jump right into the second half and you're in the middle of the war and do it all in flashbacks, all the journeying and the title and everything. I can't imagine how else you would be able to stomach it. Yeah, that is one of the questions that I find fun to ask just because I'm like, I don't know how I would do it. And yeah. I don't particularly want to spend my time thinking about how I would do it. But <laughs> I know a lot of people have a lot to say on the subject. I awesome. would like to see more Aeneid adaptations. So. Yeah. So uh, if someone wants to come up with that, I will try to watch it. Try not See to- how much you get through. Yeah. Yeah. Try not to judge it too harshly. <laughs> So at the end of each podcast, I ask if each guest will read the Percy Shelley version of Ozymandias. And as soon as you've read it, you know, you don't need to have the most in-depth analysis in your entire life. But if you could, you know, give us your quick thoughts about the meaning of this poem. What does it evoke? What emotions does it evoke? Oh, see, there you go. What emotions Emotions, does it evoke for you? Perfect. Sure. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Okay, Ozymandias. 
I met a traveler from an antique land who said two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions bred, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Well, my emotions are, when I read this, are, it's always both, right? It's not that, obviously, that he's still mighty and the king, but it's also not the fact that the past doesn't affect us at all. And I think that's the power of this poem a little bit. The traveler's kind of coming from the past and talking about seeing ruins, of it, but also what he really read in those real ruins. And, and there's, so there's a real communication from the past, you know, and that, to me, that tension, like, it kind of makes my heart ache but in a good way. I know it's your favorite. And I, I don't know, do people ever, do you ever tell us why? Or one of your favorites, right? No, it is my absolute favorite. <laughs> and yes, I'm pretty sure I've said this. I apologize if you're very tired of hearing me say, talk about how much I love this poem, but mm-hmm. I'm going to do it again because we <laughs> can talk about this poem too much. Yeah. It is my favorite because I love the sense of elegant decay Mm -hmm. that it evokes for many a scholar. I mean, we're studying civilizations that through our reconstructing them both by excavating things archaeologically, but also putting the literature back together, quite literally reconstructing an ancient place, Mm -hmm. people that are Mm -hmm. gone, and we just wouldn't know anything about them without mm-hmm. having found evidence. So it's that sense of elegant decay, I think, that we're always striving to get back to this, what we see, what some people see as this golden age of when things were beautiful and the world mm-hmm. was a different whatever. It's also, it harkens me personally back to when I was in sixth grade, mm-hmm. I wanted desperately to be an Egyptologist. That's all I wanted to do in my entire life, study the Amarna period because I was immediately captured by Akhenaten because who isn't by the Amarna period? It's just bonkers. As as an adult, my passion is for politics, international relations specifically, Uh but the fact that it's a very political poem. So, you know, I I look at it as a commentary of sorts by Shelley on the very ephemeral nature of political power. Right. It's kind of this idea that you can strive to be great on your own and that's fine because you might be great in your lifetime or in a certain moment, momentary greatness. In the end, you will all be forgotten, kind of, unless you did something particularly worthy of other people remembering you and and carrying that on past your immediate circle of of friends and family. Yeah, and that's the great tension that makes the Iliad so fun, right, is they're really worried about that. A lot of these heroes are, well, if I'm honored enough, then I'll have glory that will outlast me. But the Iliad also questions that. I think it questions it even by giving all these minor characters little death narratives. Like They have their little moment where the poem looks at them and says, this is a person. And then they're dead and we move on, but it's not an obliteration. And I think that's why Alice Oswald decided to translate the death narratives and the similes, because it's this moment where it's kind of true both that like 
I don't know, there's a huge sweep of humanity and we're just two people. And that's one real perspective. And there's also the real perspective where like, you're a unique person. And so am I. And, and Ellie doesn't know what to do about that. I don't think so. It just depicts it. And then you have like the tension between Achilles and Odysseus. Like Achilles is a short life with glory and Odysseus is, you know, supposedly the long life without anyone knowing about him, except then he also got his own poem. But, you know, and it's not just obviously confined to that culture. I think it's a tension in the human experience. Yeah, it, it really evokes all these things that we've been grappling with for thousands and thousands of yeah. years. You know, I always kind of say, well, where would Ramses be if this little artisan, the little guy didn't yeah. craft and make his entire statue? Because right. this king, I have a hard time, met, this king would not be making his own statues. That's not something that's <laughs> So if he wanted to be remembered <laughs> by his deeds alone, yeah, we might actually not know who he was you you do need people to help you so that's right that's right I mean that and that's usually how I perceive it I perceive it as basically like what will stand the test of time kind of in that sense you know what gets you remembered what will we remember in 2000 years and what will we forget and so thinking in those lines the very last question I ask every guest is if you think about our modern culture today is there a modern Ozymandias, something that we think is so amazing and so great right now, but in 2000 <laughs> years we'll have forgotten or look back at it like what a colossal disaster that was. This can be a person, a place, a theory. It's not, it can be anything. Well, there most certainly is, right? If, if anything, being a classicist has told me that that's true, right? What do we have, 8%? We have titles of... 92% of the titles that we have, the stuff we even know was written, we only have 8% of it from the ancient world, right? And we just know that from titles. So there is absolutely stuff that we care a lot about that will not stand the test of time, whatever that means. But I don't know what they are now because things have shifted so much, right? Things are electronic. At this point, there's just an explosion of data. And I hope that social media does not stand the test of time. I hope we realize that this is making us somewhat less free because we're more I don't know addicted to ourselves or something but I don't know it's a hard (laughs) one one of the best quick examples that I've ever heard of was my former professor Dr. David Shanker from Missouri and he just said oh here's your modern Osmandius an abandoned casino in Atlantic City right and I was like "Ooh, that's a good one it's a good one. <laughs> so yeah. it's a fun sort of theoretical question. And yeah. it's fun to and hear we'll the diversity see. of answers. Yeah, for sure. I would like to thank you once again for joining me today. It was such a pleasure to be able to pick your brain about all things Homer. And I, it's yeah. something I so seldomly get to do. Oh, it was super fun. Thank you for having me, Lexi. Trireme Transit is now departing ancient office hours. Next stop is Present Ponderings. I met a traveler from an antique land who said two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk a shattered visage lies whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read which yet survive stamped on these lifeless things. The hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. 
and on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.